You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, and welcome to Mapping the College Audition, a podcast where we explore the landscape of the college theater world and try to demystify this daunting audition process. I'm your host, Charlie Murphy, director of MTCA. That's Musical Theater College Auditions. And today, we have got an ungodly good show lined up for you. Don Wadsworth from Carnegie Mellon University, who is one of those magical, special people in my life. All artists have them, those people who believe in you early on and then really promote and advocate for you. And Don was very much that for me. Uh, I met him when I was 17 years old and we have maintained a close relationship up to and through my attending Carnegie Mellon and still really have a closeness uh, to this day. Um, You'll definitely hear that I'm a bit saucier uh, than I am probably with the average college professor. And of course, that is why. Uh, Right after the call, I was able to introduce Elizabeth and Solvay to Don. He hadn't met either of them yet. uh, And it was just a really special moment to me, as was the whole interview. It was really was special. Um, so no pressure, of course, but I do hope you enjoy the episode. Um, before we get to it, I'm just going to say to my senior families out there, I'll be seeing many of you over the next few weeks um, as we gear up into Unifieds, but just keep showing up, keep advocating for yourself. We're going to talk a lot about advocating um, in these uh, blurbs, but keep advocating for yourself in those auditions, keep trusting the process. Keep living in the moment, discover something new in each audition, and most importantly, keep having fun. You could throw out 90% of the advice and training and all the stuff that you've got. If you can show up with curiosity and have joy in each of those rooms, you're going to do really well in this process. And with that, let's get into the interview with the inimitable Don Wadsworth. Well, we are honored and excited and just a little bit titillated to have the wonderful Don Wadsworth from Carnegie Mellon on the pod. Uh, Don is a teacher, an actor, a voiceover artist, and a voice and dialect coach, among many other hyphens. He has a BA from Point Park College um, and an MFA from University of Pittsburgh. He's done voice work extensively for actors on Broadway, off-Broadway, feature films, etc. He's coached dialects on shows like A League of Their Own, Warrior, many others. As an actor, he can be seen on Netflix, The Chair, and Smart People, and Mysteries of Pittsburgh, and many more. Um, and he's also has a robust voiceover career, where we're going to get a preview of this sonorous voice in this episode, but it also exists in radio and television, video games, and maybe most notably, he's the voice for the New Testament for Watchword Productions. So he's literally the voice of the Bible. So if that starts being imagined as you hear him talk, uh, you're not wrong. Maybe we'll make, make like it, Megan put that link in the show notes. Um, just a reminder about Carnegie Mellon. Carnegie Mellon's in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I know you've heard this before from Catherine's episode. They take about 12 acting and musical theater majors each year, offer degrees in BFA in acting, musical theater, a couple other um, degrees. Don, welcome on the pod. How are you doing today? Thank you very much. I'm well and uh, happy to be with you again. Do you know how intimidating it is to speak into a microphone while you're looking at your voice and speech professor? Like, I just feel like I'm being judged constantly where you're like, that's not quite how I would have articulated that. Is that what's happening on your mind? 
I am not judging in any way, shape, or form. And you know, I love you and I've always respected you and your amazing sense of humor. <laughs> okay, great. Well, let's start off with a softball then, if that's what you are asking me. I just want to hear a little bit of how does one become a Don Wadsworth, right? Um, of course, I mean that question in so many ways, and we'll, we'll talk about maybe especially the voice and speech expertise um, a little bit more in the later half of the show. But, but how did you find yourself to this specific career at Carnegie Mellon? Well, I'll tell you a, a little bit about that. I'll try not to go on and on about it. But uh, I, I want to tell you the end point first, which is that I think a lot of people end up in um, surprising ways, surprising places. Um, I think it's important for young actors to have some ideas of goals ahead of them. But then, then there's reality. Then there's the career, which will take you any number of different places. Um, and so, you know, being in school, you know, it's, it just makes a lot of sense to do your best in every possible area because you never know where that's going to end up. So as it turned out, when I was in school, I had, I believe it was four different voice and speech teachers. And so I had different kind of, um, you know, agenda in front of me. And I think I, my, my view of it was that I was working the best way I could uh, every year because, quite frankly, I knew absolutely nothing. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and I'm starting to appreciate how important it was for me to know that, to admit that. To know that you knew nothing, you're saying. To know how little you knew. To know yes. that I knew nothing, mm -hmm. right. Um, because I think the, the quality of my listening mm -hmm. and my um, desire to just do everything I possibly could to learn anything was very high. You know, I, I knew that I had I hadn't even when I started when I was like 15 or 16, something like that, I had never even seen a play. And so I don't even know how I knew that the acting and the theater thing mm -hmm. was going to be my deal. I didn't have any 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 history, any any connections in any way. So anyway, so I went into this with the idea with my eyes very wide open because, quite frankly, I didn't know anything. Mm -hmm. And I was in a class of, I thought, really, really interesting kids. I thought they were just fantastic. And I don't remember ever comparing myself to them, but I just knew that for myself, I needed to learn everything. Mm -hmm. So it was a while before any of those teachers would say to me, you know, you're really good at this. And when that finally happened in my third year with Edith Skinner, who was like, you know, the the hero of this world, the this world. Yeah. Yeah. She was the coach of the country, quite frankly. Um, and when she let me know that I was doing a really good job and she wanted to help and support me, I thought, oh, mm. I didn't know I was good at this. I was mm -hmm. just doing my job like everybody else. And um, so she was very, very kind, very supportive and all of that. So that's cool. So then I finished school. I go out and start auditioning as an actor, which was my only real goal. Mm -hmm. And I started getting cast, which was great. And I, I was very much into Shakespeare. And, um, I, and I certainly loved doing any kind of dialects and accents. Um, and I was in a show once. I think I was still probably in my 20s, maybe. Um, but pretty, but I was pretty young. And um, in the show, there was a, an actor who was struggling to kind of make his accent work. Mm -hmm. And um, and I I didn't judge this. I didn't know anything about 
you know, what, what he had to accomplish. And the director at one point said, do you think you could help this actor hmm. with his accent? And I thought, oh, I never thought of that. And at that point, there were, I didn't know of any, I never heard of a, a person who had a job as a dialect coach. I, I think there probably were a few for maybe some very big movie stars, mm-hmm. but not a lot, you know. So at any rate, I said, well, okay, I'll give it a shot. I think it was a Hispanic accent. And so I did. And I thought, oh, that was really, really cool. Mm-hmm. I liked that. That was fun. And I hope I was helpful. And I thought maybe I was. And then, so that show happened and went away. And then uh, a while later, uh, there was another production in which I was not cast, but there were uh, actors in there working on accents. And um, uh, again, the director said, do you suppose you could help some of these actors out? I mean, you did have Edith Skinner as a teacher, didn't you? And I went, well, yeah, that's true. And I think I learned a lot from her. Um, and so then I did that. And that that's how that all started. And then then this job as a coach began to have become a reality. And I thought, this is cool because my goal, and I was, I was smart, I think, to have a goal this young, was just to work. I didn't care anything mm-hmm. about resumes or bios or money or any of that stuff. I just wanted to work. And I, and I start, started to see myself as being an actor who could maybe land uh, maybe two shows a year or something like that, which would be okay. But then as a dialect coach, I started to see that Actually, I could be working a lot more. Mm-hmm. I could maybe get four shows or something like that in a in that same amount of time. Um, and now I'm working, you know, six productions a year. Mm-hmm. This was way better for me. Uh, the idea of just working and working in and at that time it was only theater uh, was really really fantastic for mm-hmm. me. And of course, when you're on the job, you need to know what you need to do. So you you keep learning and. While I probably could figure out how I could do a, a high British dialect, I needed to find out how to teach other people mm-hmm. to do that, which is a slightly different you know, deal. So that's how that started. And then uh, because people knew that I could do these accents, um, other things started to happen in like the voiceover world. Mm-hmm. And so while I was pretty um, aggressive about looking for work for myself, it turned out that sometimes people were just asking me to to do these things. And, uh, you know, I was just thrilled because, um, I was working for the listeners in the future. When you're listening back to this, I, I that was about a three hour story. So it just, when you hear the five minute version, I just really want you to appreciate oh. Megan's editing skills of just how much we, we haven't even gotten to Carnegie Mellon yet. We're just at the, you know, he's like 23 at this point. <laughs> Thank you for that. No, but then how did you find your way to Carnegie Mellon? They, they found their way to me. Now the, the thing was, I, as I said, I, I knew nothing about theater. I didn't know about training. I didn't know about schools or anything like that, but I did know that there was this great place called Carnegie Carnegie Tech. Mm. As far as I knew, that was the palace of actor training, you know? Mm. What what this was, still is, Don, still is. Yeah, I know, but I'm saying at that time, that was the idea of, you know, where where you would want to be. But there was no possible way that I could consider that as a student in the program because I couldn't even afford the bus fare to the audition, you know? Mm -hmm. So I just kind of let that go. Um, but I always wanted to be there. And, I, and my idea of, of what that school was in my imagination turned out to be exactly what it was when I got there as a teacher. I was right. I, I knew it was going to be 
difficult and challenging and creative and, and that I would be lucky enough to be in a, in a population of fantastic people. Um, but at that point, when I was 17, 18 years old, that was just, that was just not even remotely possible. That was definitely my experience of Carnegie Mellon as well. Of like, you know, often maybe it's the timing of when I went there that we always compared it to Hogwarts, but it was like Hogwarts that didn't disappoint. It was like, it really stayed magical. It really was, you're like, it, it, from the outside, it seemed like that. And then it really felt that way on the inside, at, at least to me. I mean, everyone had different experiences, but yeah. No, I, I, I totally agree. Absolutely. Um, we're going to get more specifically into a couple ways moving forward, you know, some of the different vocal coach, dialogue coach, et cetera. But I wonder if we could take a little bit of a step back, maybe especially for our music theater applicants and, and their parents who might not really know what like voice and speech or a voice and speech class mm -hmm. is, right? Certainly, you know, some actors out there are going to have heard of Edith Skinner, but not necessarily every person. She's not necessarily a household name to a, a non-actor. So what do we mean when we say voice and speech? And if we want to do a little bit of how voice is different from singing voice and, and where speech yeah. maybe is distinct from accents and dialects or just a little bit of, of you know, glossary of terms that we're going to talk about today. Sure, of course, absolutely. That's very smart. Um, so sometimes you'll see... Um, in a list of courses, voice and speech as a course. Mm -hmm. I taught that kind of a, an arrangement for a while. I quite liked teaching voice and speech together. Mm -hmm. And voice basically, you know, I'll, I'll just reduce it down to this, means that you uh, actors need to be able to fill a big space. Um, and they need to make sure that everybody, even in the corners and the sides of the theater and all the way in the back, it has the same advantage of learning about the play and being mm -hmm. and stepping into the play as people in the front row. Um, and so we wanted power, but we also are looking for kind of variety. Is there lots of um, ways of using your voice to make sure that the text is clear and solid and that the audience actually cares about the character? So that's one element of it. In the speech end of it, you're looking more now, not so much for power, but for clarity. Um, you, we need to know exactly what's being talked about, make sure that it is clear and not only just powerful. Mm -hmm. you know? um, so that, that's, that's, that's an important aspect of the work. Now, um, sometimes whenever I take my students from the classroom and put them on the stage at, uh, at the Carnegie, we have a 500 seat theater. So it's a, it's a good test mm -hmm. of making sure that we can get our voices all the way to the, to the corners and also, uh, aid that with clear delivery because one needs to, you know, in the, in the process of rehearsal and developing a character, you're naturally thinking like, well, what does my character look like? How does my character move? Mm -hmm. uh, what am I doing, uh, you know, physically to the character? And then you also have to think like, well, who is my character insofar as communication skills? Are they good speakers? Mm -hmm. Where did they learn to speak? Um, what, what can I reveal about the character by the way that I speak? Some folks like to think of every um, character, every play that they do being a dialect but and you know because there are modern, casual, um, fully American ways of speaking that don't inquire, don't require a lot of finesse. Right, but a know? dialect of yourself. So the way you speak, but just me a little right. lower class or me a little bit different. Yeah, like that, for example. Yeah, or or, or maybe the opposite. And and no, you there's need no, to there's no higher class for, than me. No, I'm already I start at the top. So anything I, is just lowering if it's right. I was using the metaphorical me. Oh, the metaphorical you. Oh, God, I fully understood. Yeah, I'm saying. <laughs> um, so one should 
aim for at some, at some point in the training, like the most challenging level of speech, you know, <laughs> like what is the, what is the cleanest possible way that a character might speak and make sure that that looks natural uh-huh. in case you need that. You know? uh-huh. So you look at it, you look at the dialogue and the, uh, on the page and you say, well, this, this character is clearly very well spoken. And so therefore you've got to come up to that. So that's the speech, but you also, it starts to also bleed a little bit into the dialect world, you know? Now, let me just make this clear in case anybody's interested. People say dialects and accents. And in my world, those are two slightly different things. Dialect is a version of the way you speak. So for American actors, dialects include things like a Brooklyn dialect, a Southern mm-hmm. dialect, like that, you know? Um, and accents are um, languages that one tries to speak, but are, is not your your native language. Uh-huh. So for Americans, French is an accent, German is an accent, Russian is an accent. Those are all the terms. We've defined the glossary of terms. This is everything I wanted from you. Um, We're done. I, I, do, I do feel like, yeah, it's, uh, you know, I'll sometimes get parents who will look at, I'm paying $50,000 a year and they'll see the terms on this stuff and it looks like speech and movement and, and clowning, you know, and they're like, how, what is this stuff? It feels like it's kindergarten or whatever. It's like a, my child knows how to move, you know, um, but some of that stuff, I think it, it is important for, for uh, an outside perspective if you're seeing what you're about to enter into of just what, what this actually means. What, what are we doing all this for? But also one never knows what aspect of the theater, the performing that one's going to go into. I mean, you could be in a Shakespeare class in school and think, I'm never going to be in a Shakespeare play. And then lo and behold, you know, you are. And so things happen and you're surprised and you say, thank goodness that I was, you know, fully awake whenever we did those classes, because now it's really turning out to be useful. I always talk about that. It seems like the classes I thought I was going to use the least were one of the first ones I ended up going up. I am coming to this thing. Oh, I am going to do use these colors that we did in movement class or some of these things go. I was like, ah, this is, when am I ever going to use this? You do. You, you, you know, at some point in your career, you will. Um, I, I want to go, the, um, I do keep promising the second half will be deep on voice and speech, but I just thought I would do a, a rapid fire on Carnegie Mellon, right? All of our listeners have heard our wonderful episode of Catherine Moore, since all of our listeners listen to every episode. But um, I do think some of these questions that are more subjective and intangible, it could be nice to hear some of the different perspectives. So I'm not going to ask you the kind of boring logistical questions. These are just going to be the gooey, artistic, how do you feel about this ones? And I'll go rapid fire, only going to give you a couple of them. Um, but I, I would love to just start with like, in your experience of the, you know, nine decades you've been at the school, like, what do you think it means to be a, a Carnegie Mellon student? Like, wh- what what qualities are you looking for when, you know, you're seeing this is a Carnegie Mellon student, this person feels like they're, they, they belong in, in this magical castle. Um, what do you, what sets them apart from, you know, all the other actors that you see? Huh. Well, okay. I think that's a good question and, and a little tricky to answer. Um, so I think for your students, your, your former students and maybe current ones, and maybe everybody already knows this, but let me just say it. I think it behooves anybody to be looking at what any school's alums are doing in the business now. Uh, and you can't go back, you know, back to the sixties or the Mm seventies. You have to look at people who have been graduated in the past few years because they're going to be in that same training with those same teachers. Mm -hmm. 
Where you're so, saying, don't, don't count Ted Danson for Carnegie Mellon or whatever. Ted you know, Danson whole is exactly thing. what I was yeah. thinking of, yeah, of It's just like, you're like, that, that's amazing. But that was, you know, everybody was different at the school. At, 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 back and Holly Hunter and yes. Yeah. And God bless all of them, you know. And we love Ted and Ted has been back and so is Holly and they're great. Um, in fact, Holly came in at one point and we worked on some Shakespeare together uh, not, yeah. not that long ago. But anyway, so I think those people who have real careers, not just like we're really lucky to be in a show, but have real careers are mm-hmm. showing a lot of range and the um, the openness to try things that might be a little different, a little bit scary, mm-hmm. but um, also have, I think, enough confidence, Charlie, that they, uh, even though they might go into something scary, they're not, um, they're not starting from zero. Yeah. You know, they, they know that there's enough confidence in what they've done before. They've done some pretty tricky shows, probably in school. And um, so I think the idea of having the ability to go in lots of different places, places you wouldn't necessarily expect. When I started, I never, ever thought that I would end up in film or uh-huh. television because I only knew theater. And I was happy and I would have been thrilled to just keep doing that. And then when the film came along, I thought, well, it's not that different than what I've done. I've, I've got to play to the microphone and not to the 26th row. Mm-hmm. And I have to make sure that it's in me, but I don't have to like, I don't have to push to show everything. Uh-huh. So I'm trying to answer your question about What's the ideal situation? I think the ideal situation is that people take advantage of everything that's given and they run with it. And even at first, it might not be easy or successful. Um, they're going to they're going to jump in there and give it a good, you know, give it the give it the college try. I have to tell you this in auditions, because I've auditioned a bunch of uh, classes um, several thousand kids, quite frankly. And in the audition, it's not that you're always looking for like the finished product uh-huh. because there is no such thing at 17. There just isn't. But if, you know, if I see something that I think is really interesting and I say, can we do that monologue again? Only this time, racka, 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 mm-hmm. you know, and the student goes, Oh yeah, great. I think, Oh, I already love this kid. Right. Uh-huh. Because you just said you're, you're willing to try to go to different places. That's exactly what I think we should have. So you're really sniffing out. And I've heard a couple different versions of this. You're sniffing out openness. You're sniffing yeah. out the ability and maybe the willingness for versatility, even if the, the student at 18 isn't completely versatile in every way. But you're looking for that, you know, in terms of going, I want that kind of student, the willingness to play. I'm, I'm also going to quote you back to you since I sometimes we'll quote you to our students of you, you said something and I'm going to paraphrase of like, I think of talent as sensitivity. Um, I think you said at some point in school of like their ability mm-hmm. to be sensitive to language, sensitive to the emotional, you know, it's like that, that there's some, something that, you, that you're speaking toward of, of sensitive, sensitivity, meaning sensitiveness or whatever, if we're, you know, and their ability to be sensitive and, and be feeling, which in some ways I guess is a version of openness. You look at me like you don't remember saying that at all. You don't, you're like, no, no, absolutely. No, I, I believe in all of that. Absolutely. <laughs> because the word talent does come up, you know, right. and, and you say, well, what is it? What is it for actors? I mean, for musical theater, yeah. a lot of our listeners in musical theater, they think of talent and they know I can belt a high C, I can kick my face. There are more objective skills with dance and singing versus acting. It is more subjective. It's hard to know. But, but talent doesn't necessarily have to just be technique. You know, Correct. it can also be the, the open heart that says, let me go in there and explore this and see if I can find this sometimes inside me. 
yeah. even though this, this character is radically different from me, I might be brave enough to go in there and look around and see if I could identify. Yeah. And, well, and, and I guess what I was saying with the singing versus dance is that for acting, I would say most of what you're looking for is likely not technique from an acting perspective. You're not hoping to go, oh, beautifully elocuted with that. You know, the, you're like, you know, you're going to teach them that over the four years that if they're 17, 18. I can't imagine that you're looking. We'll talk about some of what you are looking for, but I can't imagine it's a lot of acting technique. Not technique. No, no. Right. You're looking no, no, no. for that talent, that sensitivity, or that that ability to learn, right? There's some 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 sometimes indefinable. I was trying to get um, our our previous guest, who was a an agent from Stuart Talent. I was trying to get, say like, what are you looking for with it? And he was like, you know, it's just it. It's what's gonna pop. It's gonna say, yeah, it's hard to say. It's hard to say what well, it is that you're looking for. Let me give you an example, though. Okay, so years ago, a student came in to audition for us, and he said he was going to do this particular Shakespeare piece, and I mm-hmm. thought, oh no, I'm so sorry that he said that because this is not the part for him, Mm -hmm. you know? But I said, okay, let's have a go, you know? So he does this piece from King Lear. It was Edmund from King Lear. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, you know, he's just not the typical Edmund at all. Mm -hmm. But then he did it. I thought, oh, it's really smart. Good job, you know? So I said, well, let's, let's play around a little bit. Let me ask you to try this in a couple of different ways. He goes, sure. So then I go, um, Okay, let's try the monologue instead of being something that kind of gets delivered straight to the audience, which is one way to go. How about if this was kind of like some sort of inner prayer for yourself? And he goes, ooh, okay. And he tries this piece, uh, you know, in like just a couple of words. Thou nature art my goddess, to thy law my services are bound. And I go, and he did it, and it was very internal, but I still got it. And I could see him kind of searching for an answer. And I went, oh, well done. Okay, now I'm getting greedy. Mm-hmm. Now let's try something else. Okay, not a prayer at all, but a justification. Now I want to see you argue with yourself. Okay, so now it's a very active thing. Jumps in there, does it again. And he doesn't even get to the third line before I go, okay, you did it. Mm-hmm. Then we did a couple more. I went, mm-hmm. okay. This, this is exactly what we're looking for. Mm-hmm. Someone who just jumps in there, doesn't necessarily know where it's going to end up, but is very willing to give it a try. It's so, it's, I think that example is so helpful. I often ask um, faculty, like, can you remember an example? And I always feel like I'm putting them on the spot, but I really appreciate that of both giving the example of what they came in with was prepared. So it wasn't completely raw and messy, but then there was that willingness. It feels like it's hard to sometimes find that balance. Some students come in, they're like, I'm just completely open and I have done nothing. And then there's the people who are so prepared that it's hard to, hard to shake them, hard to get, find that flexibility, hard to, from what they were doing. While you're speaking to a student like that, and I'm saying, well, imagine this thing, you know, you can see them listen to you, mm-hmm. you know, and they, they, a little bit, they leave the room, but they're starting to like step into that world, right? That's the prep. That's all mm-hmm. I need. Mm-hmm. You want to call that technique. That's fine. But it's not really, it's just a, 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 an idea that I'm willing to make this yeah. trip. And then we're getting to see what they'll be like with you for the next four years. You go, and this is what they'll be like in exactly. class. Probably. Of course. It's great. And beyond that. Well, and let's talk a little about the four years. So imagine you get that one exact student. I can't believe you're using an example who's not me, but it's fine. That student auditioning with King Lear, great. Um, they're, they're open. They're so ready to play. How does that student come out? You mentioned versatility, I think, is a real um, thing that you, you do. But what from freshman to senior year, how do you see that CMU students often come out change? What is the thing that they're really gaining from the school experience um, if they come in with all those qualities? Well, um, 
then I think I think the four years have, does have to be about technique now. Okay, mm-hmm. so we put them on stage, and we and you know you say now if you just open your position up, I'm going to get your voice way mm-hmm. back into the corner. You know, um, if I if if you're in the downright corner, make sure you get that that. Uh, that onstage foot a little bit behind you because then everybody gets to see you, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. When you make an entrance, make sure you do this. Don't, when you make that turn upstage, don't um, do most of the line with your back to us. Mm-hmm. Retime it so that when you, by the time you're turned around, we get the line again. So it's about that. It's about analyzing the text. What do you see in this text? What are the operative words? What should I remember about that speech, that monologue, that scene? So make sure that I do remember it, find a way to to do that. So now we're adding technique to whatever that talent thing was, that sensitivity. So true. Um, Okay. I know for many years you were deeply involved in the showcase for CMU. Um, I just love to hear a little bit, especially, you know, in your time with it, how do you feel like Carnegie Mellon prepared actors for their, you know, their launch into the business from, from really that business, the business class through the showcase. Um, And maybe how has it changed in, you know, the many, many years since I went there? I have to say, first of all, that once again, my ignorance was to my benefit. I had never seen a showcase when I went to Carnegie Mellon. I had no idea what that thing was. So uh, at the end of the year, you know, people said, hey, Don, come and see the senior showcase. And I went, all right, what is that? You know, Mm -hmm. and I saw these students do one minute monologues, two minute scenes. And I thought, what in the world is this? We have we've worked with these guys for four years to have them sustain a performance mm-hmm. throughout a couple of hours. And now we're, we're trying to see who they are in a minute. That's crazy. OK, but the more I got into it, the more I realized the power and the great uh, opportunity that a showcase could be, because mm-hmm. I realized that on one's own, it's very difficult to carve out a career. Mm-hmm. If you don't have an agent to open the doors for you, it's going to be rough going. So now we have to figure out, you know, what the agents want. And so when I got into it, I was really curious about how that worked. And at one point, one of the um, alums, an older alum who had had been in a zillion movies, a, a, a face you would know, actually, um, said to me, let me introduce you to my agent. I'd love for you to meet my agent. And I mm-hmm. thought, oh my God, what a great idea. Of course, we should talk to them. Mm-hmm. We shouldn't just do a show and then see what happens, you know? So I went to this agent and I said, tell me, what are you looking for? Just the same question you had, you know? And um, and and he, he proceeded to tell me how um, he made choices about the actors that he would sign. And so I thought, well, let's build a showcase around that. So then I saw like just finding a scene maybe wasn't perfect. We needed to find a scene that was right for that actor, uh-huh. that they were smart in doing, something that wasn't terribly overdone, and make sure that they could shine in those moments, which could mean that you could take a, a five-minute scene and turn it into a two-minute scene by just picking the highlights of mm-hmm. those moments. Now, the transitions are tough but really tricky transitions are really interesting. Mm -hmm. You know, I love you so much, 
but why do you treat me like this? You know, you go, oh, wow, that was mm-hmm. A to Z in, there, uh, in a moment there. So it's not so much now about the idea of supporting the playwright, uh-huh. but seeing how the playwright can help you to sh- show your your bravest, smartest, most interesting sort of moments, you know? Totally. And so, you know, the the, the agents, uh, you know, I got braver and braver and the agents were very happy to talk about this. I thought, oh, here am I being all timid about this. In mm-hmm. fact, they like talking about it because when they go to these showcases, they are really looking for new young talent. And these kids who are 21 years old have a, um, um, an advantage that is actually rather surprising because the agents are looking for who's the new kid on who's the next? block. Yep. Yeah, who's next? And so you have to make sure that you find material that will show them and and find a scene that will work for both people and make sure that in, in two minutes, there's an arc to that scene, that there are definite um, um, tricky little, as I say, transitions and actions and switches. We all, we're always talking about the switches. You know, how does the character go from this to this? Um, and that's a little different than when you're putting a play on and you're trying to serve the play. Now you're trying to find something that will be interesting every single and imaginative every second of it. Totally. Yeah. No, and it's, it's so interesting that the, you know, we always talk about like, you know, showcase isn't everything. It's not your only chance. It's not, you know, so many actors we know, of course, I end up with agents that are not the people they met in showcase and they change, but the, the preciousness of that time of being new is really, it is, that is something that I think you can hear as an actor, but I wish I had, had heard more deeply and really understood of like, you have this window when really more, so many doors are open to you because they are looking at you when it's just harder to open those doors when you're 26, 27, 28. And they're like, ah, you're, you're all yeah, news or whatever. Really yeah. hard. Absolutely. Yeah. And you know, I, I've heard of uh, people who say, well, I'm going to go to LA and see how it works out. And I think, well, good luck. Who do you know? Yeah. yeah. How is that? How, how do you think you're going to get an audition? <sighs> you won't even know about the audition. By the time you know that a thing is being cast, it's already cast. Yeah, yeah exactly. So true. Yeah. Um, all right. My last CMU question is, I just want to talk about the different platforms. Uh, have you done some of them, you know, now as we've switched into Zoom? I don't know, in terms of where, where your your experience of from in person, I know, you know, when you first started this, it would have been like a papyrus scroll or whatever. <laughs> but now, then it was just normal in-person auditions and then <laughs> Zoom. Just so the listeners know, Don is laughing. I'm not just being mean to him and just constantly calling him old. Like, I just need them to know that it's okay. Um, but then with, you know, this new version of Zoom and now sometimes multiple callbacks, which has kind of shifted a little bit with Carnegie Mellon doing that more. Um, how, how has that shifted the audition process for you? Maybe from that moment where in the room you're saying, let's try it again, let's try it again. And there's that experience live. How has that shifted as we've now moved into some online environments? That's really different. You know, it's very different because you really need to play to the microphone and to the camera and not much else, you know, you've, because you've got to make that look real. In a live audition, take big old chances if you're in a big space, for mm-hmm. sure. But you better not do that if, if you're in front of a camera because now it's just going to look silly mm-hmm. and pushed, you know? So it's got to be more real and, um, and more personal. Yep. So I'm, I'm saying more real and more personal like it's an easy thing to do. Right. And Snap it's your actually, fingers make it more real. Easy. Yeah, right, right. And, and some people think, oh, that means do nothing. And I go, no, 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 mm-hmm. no. It does not mean do nothing. It means be more specific with what you're going on. Read your scene partner. 
Make sure that you're playing from that scene partner, even if we don't see the scene partner, because we're certainly going to be watching you watch them. Yep. So it's a very different thing. You know, we talked about your, what you're sniffing out in terms of that larger capital T talent and, and sensitivity and, and, and versatility and openness and some of those things from an acting perspective. What about from a vocal perspective? You know, for our, our actors, our non-musical theater actors, what are you listening for in the vocal instrument, if anything? I, I know some actors will like, some acting schools will actually have the actors sing. I know Carnie Mullen sometimes would do that. They say, I wouldn't mind mm-hmm. hearing you sing, just a cappella. Just like, what mm-hmm. are you listening for in the instrument, if anything, you know, of what you're looking for. Sometimes when actors sing, you see a different thing and you go, oh, look at that. Mm -hmm. The singing has opened up this instrument a lot. And there's, uh, it's it's a bigger, bolder, more sensitive opportunity. So you're, you're glad that you got to see that because there's more there than you even would have guessed, you know, and you might see some, some boldness, um, there, there's lots of reasons to do that. There, there may be a little bit more art mm-hmm. in the singing. And you're looking for that potential for a really interesting voice too. Now, on the Can you just think side, you mean really interesting singing voice or, or do you mean really interesting both, speaking voice? Both. both, okay, yeah. Yeah, now I don't have any expertise in singing, but I could certainly go, well, I could certainly listen to that for a couple of hours, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, but but more in the in what the singing allowed them to do because you know we want our singers to be good actors Mm -hmm. it's an acting school it happens that we sometimes sing and we sometimes dance but it's an acting school Mm -hmm. um so we definitely want that now i want to just say on the opposite side of things when someone comes in with some very tricky speech issues Uh you go okay how how willing do i guess this is going to be for the student to make a change because there is, I don't see a career uh-huh. in that speech problem. And is there and an example? Like what, what do you mean by a tricky speech issue? You know, what kind uh, of thing a would really, A really thick, nasty lisp uh-huh. yep. could be a problem, yep. you know? And so um, you, you might feel, even in the audition, you might open up the topic. Have you ever had any speech training, any uh-huh. speech therapy? And just see if anybody wants to talk about that, if, if they're aware of it, if they want to go after it. Because we don't have speech therapy. We have speech, right. but not speech therapy in the four years. Yep. So I've had people that have had issues and I go, look, if you want to meet over your lunchtime, let's work on this issue, you know, yep. and we can get a certain, um, pro- we can get a certain degree of progress, but you're going to have to do a lot of this on your own. Yep. Um, and sometimes I'm, I might just go, I don't see this happening yep. in four years. Totally. Nobody's perfect. That's okay. Well, you know? uh, one person accepted, right? Uh, yeah, one person accepted. <laughs> Thank you. Please, Don. You can't say nobody's perfect on this podcast. Um, no, let's take a little break. We're going to run a couple ads, pay some of those bills. And on the back end now, we're going to really get into voice and speech a little bit more deeply. I know, I know we've started doing that already, but we'll get a little more deeply um, after the break. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. 
The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We are back with the great Donald Wadsworth. He has some tea massaging that beautiful instrument of his, um, and he's going to give the second half a go. Um, I would love to start off with, can we define what a vocal coach is versus a dialect coach? Because Lisa, uh, the way you've talked about it is sometimes I'm a voice coach for um, celebrities or something, and sometimes I'm a dialect coach. And I know sometimes those can kind of be conflated and be kind of both. But uh, mm-hmm. how how are those different maybe in different media, what, if you're talking about theater or film? Um, I'd just love to hear a little bit about, about those. They could be. Um, I think it's all very vague. And I think people like the vagueness of it because they want to make it be their thing, whatever that thing happens to be. Uh-huh. Um, and also, I, I think that sometimes when you use the word dialect, and dialect coach as a term, not everybody gets what that is. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess voice coach might, I don't know, I'm guessing on this, but I think it might sound more general and it might be that, you know, all things that have to do with performance could be enhanced by someone who, you know, uh-huh. who, who coaches, who, who makes um, suggestions to the actor about how to do that. Mm-hmm. So I worked on a show uh, in, in which uh, I was just helping the actor realize what was actually on the page. Uh-huh. And so, almost text coach in that case, almost a text, like a text coach. Or whatever. Yeah. Right, yeah. exactly. But I, I think like in a film, nobody would ever use the word text coach. Mm-hmm. It sounds too fancy schmancy, you know, uh-huh. and British. Yep. Lord, good Lord, you know. But uh, definitely so you're closer to an acting coach at this point. You're, you were coaching their yes, actors, really. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Um, so anyway, so it could be anything. And sometimes actors themselves are more comfortable with different um, uh-huh. titles. Yeah. You know? And I've, I've been called a dialogue coach, too. Uh-huh. And what is that, you know? So it's whatever it's for whatever. the writing. Are you are you giving some notes on the dialogue to the writers? It like, doesn't sound real. I don't think we meant however in that line, did we? <laughs> no. Where to for? Yeah. <laughs> um, and what have you learned? So from that experience of of doing, especially, I mean, you know, we'll, we'll talk about some of the incredible career of film and TV that you've come some of it to a lot of it to Pittsburgh, but uh, some of this amazing stuff that you've done on TV and film says, what have you learned and, and maybe brought back to your teaching experience from, you know, working with these celebrities and all these big budget productions, et cetera? Yeah. Well, I think, I think the idea there to tell the students is like, here's what you're going to need to know. This is how this is going to go. Mm-hmm. This is what is expected of you. I would think having done a bunch of these things, I can tell you that this is how this goes. For example, if I'm working on a dialect in class, you know, and a student might be having trouble with it, the student might say something like, oh, well, you know, if I get a job, I'll, I'll have a coach. And I'll go, maybe not. Mm-hmm. I, I would not expect that to be the case. I think if you're, um, if you're a major star and the idea of the film success is based on using this particular actor, yeah, you may get a, a coach in the deal. Mm-hmm. But if you're a day player where you've got one or two days, they're going to expect that you already can do the accent. Yes. And that'll probably be part of the audition, quite yes. frankly. Yep. So what I'm working on in my class right now, as a matter of fact, is how students can be their own coaches, yes. how what they need to do 
to prepare for this kind of thing with with no expectation that they're going to get some outside help. Yep. It's the thing that I wish I had taken more from school, from the dialects. And not that the, the it wasn't there in the training, but the the ability when auditioning to kind of self-regulate a subtle dialect, I feel like mm-hmm. was something that was was so often, I would realize in auditions of like, I need to find not like a, a, a gentle New York dialect here. Something that's like just, I'm applying a cop. And so he's just got to be general blue collar, but they don't actually want to hear a New York accent or whatever. Those little twinges and stuff where you go... For those parts where you have three, four lines, yeah, you're it, they're just going to cast it based on that. It's not about what you do. It's not going to be they're not going to be like, oh, we can give him lots of notes and adjustments and versatility. When it's four lines, this is like whoever does the thing that's oh, that sounds like how we expected it to sound. You're in or whatever. So the, that was such a um, a learning, especially for those sort of co-star four or five lines when you, that's what you're going in for. There is something about like nailing the dialect and of course what you look like, but you can't fully change what you look like. You can really adjust. Yeah you know, it's bringing my incredible high class voice down to whatever the lowers it needs to be, the lower levels. I know. And I, and I, I think your, your term of, about self-regulation is a, is a good one because so what can you do, you know, to tone that down? Yeah. Well, maybe in, instead of doing a lot of different sound changes, that's the term we would use in building a dialect. Maybe you don't have to make a lot. Maybe you can just do one little sloppy T or yep. something like that, or you pronounce all, you know, yep. instead of all, you know, yep. and maybe you don't do a lot more than that. I have to tell you and your listeners, in the 80 zillion productions I've been involved in, no one ever said, let's go really strong in the accent. Correct. Yep. No one has ever, ever said that. And they often don't know, unless they, unless it's like Matt Damon, it's a Boston accent. Like they often don't know exactly what it sounds like. They want the feeling often of that feels like the character, but they don't care if the sound changes are exactly correct or what, you know, it's like, if you're like, oh, that's actually not consistent. If I did that, I probably would also do that. They don't care. They just want it to feel like what TV feels like in a blue collar person or whatever. Absolutely. Which is why you would have a coach there anyway, right. so that they can make those changes for you or, or, or subtract some of it. Yes. Um, do you have any fun onset stories from the, you know, the Tom Hardys or the Chris Pines or some of those, you know, amazing people that you got to work with? Any, you know, oh, ridiculous stories or, you know, it doesn't have to be from those two, but uh, um, of going, oh, th- oh, this was really fun and challenging. Or I know you've sometimes talked about when productions have asked for a Pittsburgh accent and some of those where you're like, I don't know if, or Pittsburgh dialect, I don't know if you know what that sounds like. Or, um, yes, right. right, right, right. Yeah, for a CBS show, um, they brought me on to do this show called One Dollar, which was a really clever idea of following one a dollar bill through different hands and mm-hmm. different crimes and things like that. And it happened that it, it took place in Pittsburgh. So they said, well, we want to do a Pittsburgh uh, dialect. And I went, Really? Are you sure you want to? And now because... you don't. Now you do not. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, because even when people do it really well, people who have never heard it before are going to go, what is that thing? Because yeah. nobody knows what that is. Nobody knows what a Baltimore dialect uh-huh. is. You know? So you can do it really well, but is it worth it? You know? Yeah. So anyway, on that on that particular show, I, I started to teach these actors, all of them were from New York and L.A., what the dialect was. And they just would look at me dumbfounded, <laughs> like, what are you talking about? So I would say, well, we say Danton and we say Fran. Don't be frowning at me. And they would go, what is that? You know, but. 
they got really into it. Yes. And some people, when they get to the dialects, they feel like, okay, now I have a character. Uh-huh. Now that I can do the dialect, you know? Um, and and it, at times I would go, okay, you guys are being too good at this now. You have to <laughs> chill stop. out. Be a person. Chill yeah. out. It's too much because all we're doing is listening to the crazy, yes. you know, level of this dialect. But you want to be able to go there. Yep. And, you know, uh, the, the, uh, Aphorism that you often hear from people is that from actors will say, well, I'll go fully out, then I'll pull it back. Well, a lot of people can't pull it back. Uh-huh. That's just, that's a silly idea yep. because doing less is actually quite so hard. To do. Yep. It's very difficult to go. You know, I worked with Bob Hoskins, uh, breast his soul and tried to help him with a, an American dialect. And um, it was very tricky for him because he could do a really strong, silly, cartoonish uh-huh. Brooklyn. Yep. But then when we said, okay, the character's from like Vermont, like really hard to do. You know? Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. No, I, and, I, I, that exact experience with I, I was helping my partner with, she was auditioning for a TV show that takes place in Pittsburgh. And it just basically just said no Southern dialect. They didn't want it to sound Southern. They're like, you can try it if you want, but don't don't let it get crazy or whatever. They they think they were trying to say be subtle with anything that you do or whatever. But yeah. it was sort of a blue collar Pittsburgh. And same experience of I could kind of teach the sounds, but I couldn't teach a subtle. It could, she couldn't get it at a at a level that was you know it's a quick audition. Obviously, I'm sure if we worked longer. But the idea of doing it in a way that I'm like. But how would a person actually sound like if you were from Pittsburgh, as opposed to as opposed to oh no, come on, Dan Tan, you know, no. some of those sounds. The cartoon so is hard. easier to do. So, yeah, yeah, without a doubt. So you just have to make a decision about exactly what to hit, and then let everything else be, you know, let let it relax. So who is that person? So that uh-huh. person's really good in certain ways, but not in all ways. And so yeah. you get this little. A tricky little sound like one of our, one of my students just called me I think yesterday and said I have to make a tape with a Polish accent but they're asking it to be really subtle and mm. I said okay here's here's two things to do yep. just do this and nothing else yep. and let's see how that sounds and if it works cool yep. uh, it might but that that doesn't necessarily mean that it was realistic but at any rate you give it a try and you do not the most you can do but the least you can get away with. That's so, so smart. Um, can we talk and um, pivot a little bit to kind of speech in the 21st century and, yes. you know, how maybe it's changed since the great Edith Skinner was teaching you and, and she pronounced yeah, it yeah. to us so trippingly on the tongue all those years ago. Um, I, I guess I'd love to start with you. How do you feel like something like a, a standard American dialect or even, you know, what Edith Skinner would teach as a, a, a general American, um, which, you know, when we've done, I think can still to most people sound a little bit stilted or I've been accused mm-hmm. of sounding European, even though I'm like, I'm just doing general American. Um, how does that fit into a 21st century actor's tool bag? This is a tricky topic now because we're still in the transition. When I was in school and she was my teacher and her protégés were my teachers too, we had a very strict regimen of how things sounded, yes. okay? And again, as a student who knew nothing, I said, yes, ma'am, let me do everything that you say. Yep. And I don't regret that because later on I realized I had to make some decisions on my own about how far to go, but at least I had that level. So at that time, um, that was the way to go. We, I remember you know, learning things like it's not – Tuesday, it's Tuesday. Tuesday. And I go, Tuesday. Oh, cool, cool, cool. <laughs> and so I immediately thought, then I should be sounding like that all the time. Uh-huh. Sure. You know? And so, uh, and some of that I think was smart. And some of that I absolutely did and still do. 
And um, and I remember, like you, when I when I went out there, people would say, "Are, are you British? Yeah, you're from Sweden. Something's interesting about you. It's indefinable." <laughs> yeah. And I never liked to hear that because then I thought, okay, that's not what I really wanted. Uh-huh. I want that to be. I want this to be like clean, but not effete and not uh-huh. effective. Uh-huh. And definitely not British unless I decide that I want to make it British. Yeah. Now, in 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 the in the past, certainly in the past ten years or so, um, we we look at all of that as a very specific dialect. Yeah. Yes, some people say Tuesday, absolutely. Some people say horrify and horrible mm-hmm. rather than horrify and horrible. So, but my um, advice now is, who are you? You know. Are you a person who knows that? And who are you as the character thought? you're saying? Does as the, the character, character know that or not? But, but still helpful, do you feel like, to have that as a, a touchstone of going, okay, well, that allows me to, to go all the way up to if I learned an RP or if I learned, a, you know, if right. I needed to play that kind of character. But right. obviously not that all characters are, are going to sound like that. Yeah. But again, it's all about the ability to be adaptable, which you could actually say is the definition of acting, is being adaptable to whatever that situation is. So you absolutely need to know that, just like you would need to know it for movement, for example. And maybe the ballet training Uh would really inform a certain character in a Moliere play. Right. But But not not every character is walking around like a ballerina. All right. I'm going to ask you a doozy of a question. It's my last hard question. That's not true. There's more hard ones coming. But this is the hardest question I'll ask, which is just about the classical text in standard American and kind of how do you feel about that sound expectation? And if you want to, we can go and I think to, you're saying there certainly isn't an EDI element in terms of sort of the whiteness of that sound. And we can do that if we want. But also, I think maybe purely from a class perspective, I think I've always been uncomfortable with the idea that like Shakespeare is supposed to sound a certain way that, you know, if productions would, you know, I remember working at the Shakespeare Theater of DC and hearing, well, this is what a Shakespeare sound is. This is what a Shakespeare voice is. Right. And that feels kind of exclusionary. And yet maybe partially from my training bias, it does sound appreciably worse to me in practice often when things are quote unquote mispronounced or carelessly chosen in terms of, of how things are sound. So I, I know it's also difficult maybe to separate the kind of control from the experiment in terms of, you know, a lot of people who sound a certain way might be because they also are trained in other elements and et cetera. But I just want to, what do you think in terms of like 10 years from now or, you know, five years from now, as we're putting on classical, you know, Shakespeare text in an American way, how, how would that sound in, in your, you know, in your production and your, your perfect mind? I think you still have to go down to the very basic question of who is this character? So um, when you look at the dialogue and you say, look how how incredibly smart and intellectual and clever the dialogue is. Therefore, how can I reveal that in the way that I speak it? Okay. (coughs) When you talk about Shakespeare and other classics, you have to remember there are not a lot of Shakespeare plays that take place in England, mm-hmm. you know? So like, why are the characters, why do the characters have a British dialect or even remotely sound British? They don't need to. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, you know, the history plays should, they would, they would make sense. But if you were being really smart about this thing, if anybody cared, you would have to say, well, in the 1450s, nobody had what we know as a British dialect uh-huh. now anyway you right. know? so how can how can i use the um, text to make clear what's happening and where we are okay so 12th night happens in 
an, illusor, an illusory sort of place. Um, Romeo and Juliet is in Italy. So why, why, you know, why can't we just let it be as neutral as possible? You don't want to do it in Italian accent for uh, Romeo. Oh my God. You imagine. And you would after to, what light through on the window breaks. You would actually have to hurt people. To do that. <laughs> that, that would not be legal. No. Fair, fair. I think, uh, listeners, let us know. I think you'd want to see my Romeo and Juliet production of All Italian, no? Mm, I might be busy that day. No, I <laughs> I think we have to say, who are you? Who is your character? And how can we reveal, no matter what play, no matter what dialect we're talking about, how can we reveal who you are through the way that you speak? So you think if you're directing a show, we're not necessarily going to have a shared aesthetic of we all say Tuesday when it comes up. You know, some Maybe some not. characters might, some characters may, but but that's not necessarily you know a, a shared um, dialect. You know, certainly I think that's when I was out of school, that was still pretty common. It was starting to change. Some some companies were not. Some were saying, no, no, we're gonna, you know, we may, you know, still obey the same text rules, but we're gonna let any kind of sound come out. But some really were saying, for the sake of consistency in our production. Everybody sounds basically like it's maybe the, the the fools sound a little differently, but most of the other characters are going to sound something like a standard American, a general American, which when we say general American, it, for the listeners who who don't know that maybe is like a slightly elevated mid-Atlantic. I don't know if that's helpful a, a way of framing it, but it's going to still sound relatively stilted compared to like even how I'm speaking now. Well, hopefully none of it's stilted, but I Fair, do agree yes. that everybody could be in the same world in some form or another. And we might want to, we might, might make a distinction between the royalty and the well-educated and the thieves and robbers and, you know, uh-huh. uh, comic characters. But yes, I do agree that they sort of have to be somewhat in the same world. Nothing should make you kind of go, wait a minute, where are we? Who is that? You yeah. know, None of that should, should make us stop uh, the play. Well, and, and I do feel like this is something that colleges and really any kind of training is actively wrestling with is as we try to um, take away that maybe specific sound, which has a certain expectation. It's like, how do you also keep the same level of technique that, you know, we do, you know, that there is still the same openness of the voice and there is still, there still is some training and element toward what is, what are the poetic techniques that are happening in the text? And, and how can I mm-hmm. elevate this, which is, you know, it is poetry, it is verse. How do I elevate this? without necessarily saying it has to sound a certain way or sound like this. I think that is a challenge that right now, I think we see good examples of both extremes, but it's, it's not a ton that's going right in that place of going. It doesn't sound that stilted, but it does really lift the poetry. Um, I think it's just really tricky. Well, I think you're right. I think we are in a transition period, but I'll tell you, I had this, ex- I had this experience and it sounds like a minor thing uh, in the beginning of this year or last year, rather uh, when I was teaching the first years and we were looking at medial T sounds, T's in the middle of a word like mm-hmm. little, and pretty, right? And so I was giving a note about pretty. And the girl in my class said, well, yeah, but I say it with a D. I say pretty. And I go, I know you do, but what does your character do? Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I want you to be able to go there, as you were saying earlier. I want you to be able to go there if that's what we need. Right. But I, I don't want you to tell me this is the way I always speak because 
We're not playing you. And you're not asking them to take away their ability to say pretty in real life. I think that was, I remember some of my classmates especially early on were like, we, exactly what you said. Are we supposed to speak like this all the time? Um, you know, Ethan and I, to, um, who were best friends in college, um, would often sort of speak to each other in standard American as just like sort of a joke. And then people like, you're doing it all the time. Like, you're right. I have to stop. I can't. Don't do it. But that you're not actually saying in real life, you need to be doing this all the time just to have the ability to do it. Okay. But let me just bring up an opposing point. Another side of that coin is when you meet someone, you say, that's a trained actor. Mm -hmm. That actor sounds clear, smart, and like that. Yep. Hopefully not affected. Well, but, you failed at that. You did everything else for me, but you gave, affected is, it's happened. I've been accused yeah. of it. I can't stop it. It's everyone on the podcast knows affected is what we are. Um, let's talk a little bit about kind of teaching and the business. Because, you know, you've been someone I think has been so successful at you know, you have this wonderful teaching career of now, and I keep joking of seven decades, but m multiple decades of teaching and this wonderful three, it's multiple decades. That's a really impressive, you know, and, and growth within that realm of things, but also have really maintained a successful professional life and, you know, continue to grow that part of your career when in school. So I'd love to hear about like, how do you balance that? And what, what has that been like for you kind of finding that dual career? Well, I, if I'm on a job, I'm, I'm going to do my best on the job, of course. But there's also an I in, in there somewhere that says, oh, I need to bring this back to class. Mm -hmm. This was very interesting, you know. So I'm, you know, I, I think it, as it turned out, rather than be an actor who teaches, I think I'm probably more a teacher who acts, you uh -huh. know, and who coaches. So that the, the teacher I is always, you know, very, very alive. Um, so that, like, for example, recently I did a video game. Uh, I did this video game called Fallout 76. And apparently this is a very big deal. I, I don't know anything about it. This is not the games. 76th version of Fallout, right? This is like in 1976? I don't know. My God. I don't know. That's a lot of Fallouts. I know. Anyway, you know, there, there were lots of shootings and, you know, apocalyptic moves in this game. Anyway, my point is that I went in there without knowing exactly how this was going to go. So in the booth... They gave me these pages, which only had my character's lines on them. <laughs> and so I had no idea where, what was going on. Am I being shot? Am I happy? What's happening here? <laughs> no, I'm not even kidding. It was exactly <laughs> like that. Because I would have lines like, oh, my God, not him. And I would go, what, what happened? What happened? What happened? And, and they would say, well, your men are dying. And I, was, I guess I was a sergeant or something like uh, that. Uh, a badass sergeant, which, of course... Since Perfectly cast, only yes. in voice. Can that no, be pulled no, 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 no. off? <laughs> so I would, so I, so I would go. Well, so what do I feel about this? And so, um, given that the producer who's in my, you know, headphones and who's in LA at the time says, uh, "Tell you what, let's do two versions of everything. Uh, we'll do an A version and a B version. And so, so sometimes the A version can be like." really pissed, really angry about this thing. And then the B version can be like a broken heart and mm. maybe some guilt over the fact that your men are dying off. So I kept, I did that a lot. It was quite fun, mm -hmm. really. You know, but the uh, the teacher in me says, wait till I tell my students mm. that this is a possibility because it was really cool to do. That is uh, so cool. Even though you didn't have any idea the context of the thing. And just such trust. I mean, maybe it's not as high stakes for a video game than it would be for a big yeah. movie, but such trust in the director, whoever's doing that, going, all right, don't make me sound like an idiot. <laughs> As you piece together yeah. B with A yeah. and A with B and yeah. all those things. 
as many times as I could make him laugh is how I felt I was successful. <laughs> oh, that's great. Let's go with the A version, you know? Well, I, I, this is a perfect transition. My next question was just about a career in voiceovers. And, you know, I think we are going to at some point try to have a voiceover agent, and maybe some other voiceover artists on the pod, because I know that's a big interest of a lot of our alumni. Um, but I just love to hear, how have you been so successful at it? And, and any tips for maybe students right out of college, or maybe it's a, a 30-year-old actor with a good voiceover agent and a fancy microphone <laughs> who wants some of that voiceover money? What do we think? I, I don't have a really good answer for you on that. Um, I think everybody will tell you, everybody who's who's made a career for themselves will say, well, here was my path. Mm-hmm. But everybody's path is quite, quite different and and really, really surprising, I think. Um, it certainly has, has been for me. I think that somehow people got to know that this accent thing was kind of like my deal. Uh-huh. So I would get I would get asked to try out for things that had um, either quirky voices, funny character voices, or accents. Mm-hmm. So that got to be known probably because it was connected to the coaching. I'm, I'm not. I'm not mm-hmm. really sure. Mm-hmm. But these days, it's different. These days, you probably have to create a good voiceover demo and put that in the hands of the right people, which is tricky to do. Um, and, and yes, an agent is going to be super helpful, but you mustn't be afraid to be aggressive about this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Put yourself out there, find out who's doing the kind of thing you want to do and connect to them. And if they say no, thanks, then they say no, thanks. Okay. Mm-hmm. But, um, you've got to go out there and, and be, um, bold about giving this, this thing a try, but you also have to learn what is going on in the business? Oof. You can't sit there and expect people to call you. It's not going to work. And I'm saying that because I see that a lot of my students that they think somehow magically it's all going to come about. It just doesn't yeah. work like that. Well, and so often we talk about the different, you know, industries when someone says well, the business or whatever. I'm like, you're talking about theater, TV, film, commercials, yeah. voiceover, they're, they're already. And it seems like within voiceovers, just within that realm, you know, there are commercial spots and there are video games and there's audiobooks. I mean, there's so many right. different careers, even within just the, the career of voiceovers, you know, where you can oh, be doing completely different things. Absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, you know, stay, stay active and stay very aware. It's not that difficult to do to find out what's going on. You, you know, you use in your, in your browser, you use um, things like playbill.com and deadline.com and things like that. Find out what in the hell is, is going on. And then there is just the reputation thing. So I remember being on a film um, not too long ago where I spoke to the production coordinator and I said, can you just tell me something? How did I get this job? Mm-hmm. And they said, oh, well, we worked with you on a couple of films earlier. That's how. Mm-hmm. And I went, oh, 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 okay. And um, one time I was on a TV thing. This was way, way, way back. And I asked the casting director, I said, you know, of all the people that were up for this job, I played a a period piece where I was a, an attorney uh, working against Clarence Darrow. And I said, how did I get this role? And they said, in the audition, you pronounced this word exactly right. <laughs> That's true. That's amazing. And the line was something like, I won't stand for this harassing. And they went, harassing. Harassing. Perfect. <laughs> I know. I know. Well, there's a good argument against what we were saying of like, oh, you don't, you don't need to say, you're like, no, I, you do need to have a clear actor. It's going to get me jobs. <laughs> if it's affected, it's affected. Yeah. That, that's the character. Um, uh, I just wanted any advice for the parents uh, of young artists seeking this all, right? Um, I know I'll say 
in this case, you swayed my mother, who almost immediately loved you and basically hated any artistic teacher I had at that point. Because she was like, why are you taking me away from computer science? My son should not be doing acting. But she really, uh, I think, listened to you, you know, all those years ago at Carnegie Mellon Pre-College and goes, well, I like that, Don Wadsworth. Um, But what would you say to our, our parent listeners in terms of just how they can best support their children on their paths, whether these are 16, 17 years about to go to college or recent graduates, et cetera. What do you feel as parents has been the most successful in, in you know, supporting and helping their, their, their students, their children? Well, the support is the word. I think, I, I think that's the word I would use is to find out what it's actually about. Because I think a lot of people just assume that it's all about, you know, rouge and mascara. And you say these, these lines that you memorize, you know? So I think it might be helpful when the student is really passionate about developing this sort of potential career Mm -hmm. that the parents find out what's involved. Um, You mentioned before, like if a parent was looking at a curriculum and they saw something like speech and they might go, speech, I'm, I'm paying for you to be. Can we do that in elementary school? Wasn't there a speech tutor or whatever? Yeah. So I think, I think them being uh, at least as, as uh, aware as their kids are, as their children are about what's involved, how tricky it is, what the rewards are, how the business works. Um, they might find it a little daunting, but I think it helps for them to feel like they're partners rather than someone that has to prove that uh, the acting uh, career is a, is a worthy one. Mm-hmm. I love that. That is such good advice to those parents. And, and obviously you are dedicated if you've made it three hours into this episode um, with us all. If people want to hear more from you, they want to know more, they want more Don Wadsworth in their life, of course they can listen to that Bible on the YouTubes or whatever. But is there anything else that you, uh, places they should be checking you out? Are you on socials? Do you want them to be tagging you on LinkedIn or what do you want? No, 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 no. I don't want to do any of that. But um, (laughs) I really don't. There's too many, there's too many pitfalls in all that too. And I keep hearing terrible things. You know, um, there are things that I think, like, is it really that bad? You know, I don't, I, I don't experience, you know, uh, that stuff. But anyway, at any rate, the performance I've done most recently is, is this Netflix show called The Chair, yes. which I play a cranky professor. Imagine the, the range. The My range. God, this, yeah. you talk about versatile actors from Absolutely. cranky professor by day to cranky professor on television. My God, that's a real step. Forward. I know my st- my damnable student said, "Oh, of course that's the role you got." You know? <laughs> you're like, "Okay, I'm acting here. I'm very nice in real life, which we all know you're very." If people who've watched the chair will see the difference um, of the character, of, of course. Perhaps yes, and perhaps no. Um, well, Don, thank you so much for the time. This was such a joy. Oh, it was wonderful for me. Thank you so much. Oh, heck yeah. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Don Wadsworth. It was truly a joy to me and really very special to get to do it. Um, For this episode's takeaway, it's going to be a short one. I just want to talk a little bit about being an advocate. Um, I've mentioned that in the beginning um, and I'll say it here. Uh, You know, Don was really a crucial advocate for me early in my professional life and kind of a role model for me in wanting to be an advocate for my students is one of the reasons I got into coaching. there's something so special about an adult who can really see a young artist, right? capital S-C, their full potential and what is in their heart through whatever teenage defense mechanisms or anxieties or whatever's going on with the, the kid. If you can see through that and really see the heart of the artist, that's a, a special adult. And I think this element of belief in yourself 
from someone who a young person trusts and respects is an absolutely critical element to taking the leap from teenage actor to adult actor, right? It's a difficult and scary jump to make, kind of abandoning your childhood tricks that may have worked for you to now go into this more sensitive vulnerability of this kind of high level acting that you may have heard about. And I think that is made so much easier when you have someone else looking at you and saying, you can do it. And not just someone who's just like a general cheerleader who's like, it can be done generally, but that they're looking at you and saying, you are capable of this. You're capable of more. You can do this thing that we all, you can touch this magic thing that we've all touched. Because of course, the ultimate most important thing in an actor is that the actor can believe in themselves, right? That's, that's why this step or this sort of mentorship um, is so important. Nobody will ever want to watch a Hamlet stand alone on stage and ask us questions if that actor doesn't believe in their core that they should be standing there asking those questions. Nobody's going to want to watch a Bobby sing Being Alive if the actor playing Bobby doesn't think that they have something worthy to share with a thousand people who paid a lot of money to watch them stand under a spotlight. And that kind of genuine belief I just don't think it comes innately and just maintains itself in most people. Most people somewhere along the way are going to need a little bit of fostering, especially as young people shift and grow into new young adults who maybe are different than their 14-year-old selves or their 16-year-old selves, and now they're stepping into their 18-year-old selves, and they need somebody to be able to say, I, I see you, and there's something special there, and you, you keep going. So, you know, a, a shout out to those mentors and coaches and teachers who instill belief in their students each day. Whether you're the kind of cheerleader um, who kind of rah-rahs for them or the drill sergeant who pushes them to do their best, I think you really are creating a world of power for young people who will hopefully turn around and do the same. And students, if I can give you a little homework assignment, give some love to those people in your life while they are with you. You might know better than they that they're having a lifelong impact on you. I certainly felt that way with Don, that I was aware in the moment. I was like, this is someone who's having a lifelong impact on me, you know, in those couple months. And maybe most importantly, the best gift you could give them is accept the gift of belief in you that they're giving you. Cherish it. Cherish that belief. You actually do them a disservice if you throw it away and give in to too much self-doubt. So really own that belief that if this person believes in you, if they can believe in you, the least you can do is believe in yourself. And certainly you can believe in this podcast, giving us a five-star rating wherever you listen and a review wherever you review us. We'd like a nice review. You can shout out some mentors maybe in that, in that review. You can also follow us at Mapping the College Edition on Instagram or follow MTCA on all of the socials media in the show notes. To my young artists out there mapping their journeys, Hennessy on a Tuesday, all the way Dantan, the rest is a silence. We'll see you next week. Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.